welcome to AIJ Cast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to say a few words about a phrase that has been popping up lately, performative justice. This is the idea of doing something to look like you are being just, but actually making no concrete change toward justice. These are actions that have largely symbolic power, such as the removing of Confederate statues or the renaming of streets after the Black Lives Matter movement, things that are important, but often end up masking the fact that there is little to no substantive change taking place. Of the three police officers who killed Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, none of them have faced arrest, and two of them still have their jobs. And we've seen very little in the way of police reform anywhere, for that matter. For me, it boils down to a simple verse from scripture that says, faith without works is dead. This is a matter of incarnate faith, taking what we believe and putting it into action. And when we're talking about faith and justice, this means we are talking about real, substantive, systemic change. Speaking personally, until I see that happen, I will remain skeptical of these symbolic changes. So with that in mind, on this episode, part one of our conversation with Sally Ann McKenzie. Sally Ann is a performance artist and an ordained pastor, and she joined us from her home in North Carolina. Sally Ann McKenzie, welcome to AIJCast. Thank you so much, Martha. I'm happy to be here. Given the way that 2020 has been shaping, it's always critical to talk about the moment when you and I are talking because it may be a different moment from when the podcast is heard by other folk. And also to talk about identity. You and I are cishet white folk who are speaking in the midst of COVID-19. We are experiencing the second wave of coronavirus in this global pandemic in the United States. And we are speaking in the midst of sustained, urgent, important protests to defend black lives and dismantle white supremacy. So starting with that, let's talk a little bit about how your research and your work and your art speaks into that space of this important moment to enact actions that show that black lives matter, that black bodies matter, mm -hmm. that white folk are complicit in the ways that we support oppressive structures. So my work and research, especially over the last year, has been interested in investigating caregiving customs in both vernacular community settings and also within biomedicine and clinical spaces. What do you mean by vernacular settings? So I have been interested in the ways in which as a culture and as communities, we make sense of death, dying, mortality, and illness uh, both in the ways that we respond to and care for and keep one another in community settings, mm. but also the ways in which the industrial complex that is the healthcare system we know in the U.S. today, which I call biomedicine, mm. tends to bodies. Mm. So uh, I see those as exploring uh, in very different ways similar concerns, especially... A, tending to this lack of control around mortality. Mm -hmm. So related to where we are right now, I think that we are we are always, of course, throughout history, but right now it feels especially poignant that we are thinking a lot about death and mortality mm -hmm. as a culture and as a nation, both 
uh, from the perspective of COVID and all of the deaths that we are experiencing, right. you know, uh, from the pandemic, but also the death of George Floyd has mm. been a particular traumatic event that has stood in for and been an archetype almost for all the many unacknowledged deaths um, of black bodies. Yeah, it's a, it's a crucible or a, a galvanizing moment of sorts. Right, right. I've thought a lot about the work of James Cone mm-hmm. and thinking about the cross and the lynching tree and my own theology, the images and the experience of George Floyd's death and the important protests that are going on have made me think a lot about seeing um, the face of Jesus in in that experience mm. and thinking about death in that way. So, of course, as a white person, this is an important time as ever to dismantle white supremacy mm. and think about and investigate the ways in which our institutions have been built on white power right. and for white people. Right. And one of those institutions is the healthcare system. And so COVID has kind of just, I had been thinking about all of these things with healthcare, thinking about the ways in which biomedicine is set up as a capitalist practice and enterprise, mm-hmm. the ways in which it is for some and not for others, mm-hmm. the ways in which access is only for some. Right. All these uh, political and capitalist forces that are at work in the healthcare system. Of course, COVID has just shown us those, yeah. made those more visible. It's laid something bare that some of us have either chosen to ignore or weren't aware existed and had the privilege to ignore. For sure. So yeah. I'm interested in the ways in which that is among white communities very assumed, the ways in which biomedicine as a way to heal and a way to care is just an assumed uh, methodology and mm. modality. The death of George Floyd is, of course, different than a deaths in the hospital. Sure. But it shows us the ways in which we, as a society, are quick to move beyond death and trauma experiences. Yeah, it's a failure of a system, right? Right. In, in one case, policing as a system, and in the other case, healthcare, biomedicine as a system. Right, right. Let's, let's talk about... A, a couple of pieces that meet at this intersection that you um, have been working on lately. And then I do want to get back to talking about this interesting intersection of your life of art and ministry. Uh, Anesthetics and Code Blue are two pieces of yours which specifically look at the biomedical complex. Right. So these are two uh, immersive sculptural installations that I've been working on. One of them is called Anesthetics, and this one explores thresholds in clinical space. I was thinking a lot about the waiting room Mm. and the gift shop in Mm. hospitals. And this both intersect with what I'm calling vernacular caregiving customs. So in Anesthetics, I'm thinking about the giving of cards, the giving of get well balloons, um, language like get well soon, Um, I'm thinking of you, these tropes that become repeated and stand in for the lack of language that we actually have for approaching death, mortality, and um, trauma. It's the thoughts and prayers of the healthcare system. (laughs) Right, right, right. So, so I've set up this, uh, this installation, Um, I've been cataloging get well soon cards to, to try to track 
the similarities in mini cards that are produced by different companies. So mm. both in language and in imagery. And then I um, have as part of that installation also a video. I've been thinking a lot about the ways in which hospitals as institutions try to create or attempt to create uh, mechanisms for alleviating discomfort. Mm. And so I gathered language from videos that hospitals make for patients and families as they're entering the ICU um, to help to help calm them, to help make sure everyone knows what's going on. And so I made this video of myself delivering these messages that I collected. Don't worry. The alarms you hear are only reminders. There are many sights and sounds that will be unfamiliar. We'd like to take a few minutes to share how we are here to help. The situation can change quickly. We encourage you to get the proper rest and nutrition during this stressful time. I am here to help you with your needs and to determine appropriate care options during this time. So these are actual messages that you've collected. The language is a collage of all these actual videos. Okay. The way it's delivered is a bit awkward and a yeah. bit forced to highlight how inadequate that, that language is for actually calming us down while, yeah. um, when we're in the those situations. And so, of course, it's really, really fascinating now. I, I made the work before the pandemic. Mm. But it's fascinating now that some of that language we hear repeated on the news, we hear repeated um, in lots of different ways. And of course, now families are not able to be with their loved ones. Right. So the idea is to, to, and I'm using a lot of found objects and ready-made objects in this installation. So the idea is to highlight and show, lay bare these mechanisms that, hospitals use in order to question them, critique them, so that we really see in a new context, recontextualize kind of what what we may take for granted in those settings. Mm. And so so I also have as part of the installation balloons, um, get well soon balloons that are deflating as the installation goes along. Yeah, I love the shots on the website. They're they're pitiful looking <laughs> balloons. Yeah, I'm, and I'm thinking about these these very well-meaning gestures of giving a balloon, giving flowers, giving of cards. These these little little gestures that we have to communicate concern and yet critiquing the fact that often those are the only gestures that we are given culturally and wondering about ways in which communities may build renewed language for lament and mm. language that gives more space for honesty. It strikes me that there's a connection between this and the language around death and dying that I'm sure you experienced as a pastor in families that were grieving where other people, well-meaning people, would say the worst mm -hmm. possible things as, an, as a palliative, right? A, uh, heaven must have needed another angel. Um, there, there's, there must be some reason for this. God doesn't give you anything more than you can handle. Mm -hmm. 
all of which are intended to act as kind of the get well cards of theology. Right. And yet actually act more like little razor blade mm-hmm. cuts than they do to offer any kind of healing. And it does speak to me to kind of a, a theological incompetence within the church as well as an unwillingness maybe by society in which the church is complicit of trying to yeah to gloss over death and dying right that's exactly how i've thought about it um and i've thought about it in terms of doing theology to think about how ill-equipped we are in the church yeah. to do theology around death and dying. I've been really influenced by Kate Bowler and her work in um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies. I've loved right, her work right. on the prosperity gospel. Yeah. And so I've been yeah grateful for her work. Sally Ann McKenzie on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick word. I do encourage you to check out our website, AIJCast.com, where you will find links to our artists, as well as to their news, events, and products. The one event I want to make sure you know about is on Sunday, July 19th. I will be participating in a dialogue sermon at Park Avenue Baptist Church. That service will take place online. We have a link on our website. COVID-19 obviously has had a huge impact on artists and their events, so we do encourage you to check out our website and find out the latest about these events. And there's a lot more on our website, including a link to our shop where you can purchase art directly from our artist partners. It's all there at AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation with Sally Ann McKenzie. We pick up that conversation talking about our society's engagement with death. It also reminds me of a very amazing moment in history when Emmett Till had been lynched and murdered and his mother came down to get his body and insisted on an open casket Mm -hmm. so that the brutality of what had been done to him would be seen. And that, again, is also one... We have this morbid fascination about death, but we also have this desire to cover it up as a society and so the pressure on her to have a closed casket for his funeral was immense and she insisted on having an open casket which i have since heard talked about by people much smarter than me as this powerful moment of confronting american society what had been done to this black boy this black body and became a turning point in the civil rights movement Mm mm-hmm and so I, to me, there's, again, that parallel of kind of not glossing over death, but deal, and, and in that moment, n- not glossing over the mm-hmm. injustice of racial disparity in mm-hmm. our country. Of course, with George Floyd's death, we can see echoes of that as well. And there's a lot of scholarship yeah. around whether the extent to which in today's moment, the continued proliferation of images of violence on black bodies is is the edge on which that's helpful and the edge on which yeah. that's reinforcing a trauma. Right. But I watched, uh, of course, watched George Floyd's funeral. And I think a lot about accompaniment mm. in this moment and the way in which the casket was, I, I thought a lot about Emmett Till, of course, as many did when, when George Floyd's casket was open for everyone to accompany him. But when the casket was making its way into the hearse down the aisle, 
um, it was almost being danced. Mm. He was almost being danced by the pallbearers. And uh, thinking a lot about funeral theology and accompaniment and accompaniment all the way to the grave and the importance of those rituals, the importance of the ritual of the funeral procession and everyone who lined the streets mm. to send him home. So I think that a few funerals are really important to me and leading funerals, uh, officiating funerals was always a really important part of my sense of call to ministry. Mm-hmm. I think that right now it's of course a, a time for us to, as white people, to think about the disparity between death practices yeah. uh, in white communities and in communities of color. I think that there's a lot of theology that we could learn from. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, there's a lot I learned from that watching that funeral. So yeah, I do want to talk about this. I think what the overarching kind of theme of your life, as far as it jumps into our conversation, is these two vocations of being an artist and being a minister. And I know from having known you for a while that those two things have been intertwined for a long time. And yet I'm wondering about the your process of bringing them together, keeping them distinct, and the internal challenges you may have felt to do one or the other, and the external challenges from communities, whether the artistic community or the church, you may have felt to keep them distinct or to bring them together. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so uh, my the conversation between art and theology has been a lifelong one for me. Um, it has taken, it's been an experience of different seasons and a continual discernment and continual sense that I changed my mind about the relationship <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I expect that I always will be a lifelong learner about the relationship. So, yeah, so I I studied art in college and then went to seminary from there. And after seminary, um, served as a a pastor at Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta and then served as a pastor of a small membership congregation in Virginia, Colonial Heights Presbyterian Church. And um, during my time as a pastor, I was also making art as a bivocational um, endeavor. Mm. And so it became increasingly, as I started my life as a pastor, I remember feeling a sense of hope that I would be able to combine these two vocations. Mm -hmm. And that quickly, I quickly learned that for me, it was important for me to to separate the two Mm. as two vocations. And I think that's for several reasons. One of the reasons is actually that in the practice of ministry, preaching, caring for others around me, and worship leadership, I recognize that as an art practice. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so I uh, recognized in uh, exploring sacramental leadership, for example, being at table and font, that that was the the execution of those actions was taking the form of performance art for me mm. as a discipline. So I started learning about performance art. So it, it's it, they needed to be separate both for my own health mm. and both for me to maintain a sense that there were two vocations happening, but also separate because of just how... Uh, much connection I saw so that ministry, I see ministry and the task of ministry as 
an art practice, hmm. just a different art practice than what I was doing in my art uh, life, which was mostly pottery uh, at the time when I was serving as a pastor. So then I, I, I was continuing to discern how was I going to really develop in both of these vocations and the I had been developing as a pastor and gaining more experience with those tasks, but at the expense of really the time and space that I really felt I needed to develop as an artist. Mm. So I discerned that I needed to um, apply for a Master of Fine Art programs and explore what that might might be like. It turned out to be a very long uh, process and um, there's a lot of of work that goes into that and it was a, a lot of continual making space and time to to go through that process but I ended up in a Master of Fine Arts program at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill mm. and it's a two-year program and uh, so I've just finished those two years which are two years to really focus wholeheartedly on my work and mm. my research. So the journey continues. And <laughs> I also, as part of that experience in the MFA program, I started teaching undergraduates, uh, taught sculpture and color theory mm. and drawing. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a very, very exciting experience to be able to teach in, of course, a secular setting practices that I was developing as an artist and really to build up that side of my artistic vocation, which is teaching. Mm -hmm. So uh, teaching is a huge part of that as well. And teaching has now become one of the great overlapping mm. uh, vocations because, of course, uh, as a pastor, I see myself as a teacher sure. as well. And... Uh, theologian and and I think now I see whereas before I saw pastoring as an art practice mm. now I also see making art as a way of doing theology mm. so I think it's oh it's just it's complex and overlapping but um and and always changing but I I'm committed to the conversation it sounds like a beautiful mess which is just about right and maybe I'm laying bare my own assumptions. What, how does the church world view art and what are we getting wrong? Well, I, first I'll say that I don't think art is one thing. I don't uh, think that. And maybe that's it right there, right? That we, so it, I, I really think that it is. A little presumptuous to say that any one thing is art or isn't art. Yeah. But there is a quote unquote art world, contemporary art world, that is the world that I've kind of been immersed in over the past two years that has taught me a lot and is very different than um, any other community I had been a part of as mm. part of the church. Also, shares some similar concerns for justice, yeah. similar concerns for care mm. of one another, for inclusion. So the art, contemporary art world uh, is like what we think of when we think of uh, an art gallery, white cube, 
space, the church, I think there are, there are different communities. And by church, I mean, I'm thinking about the PCUSA because that's my context. Yep. Uh, the context I can speak in. So a lot of the work that I'm seeing happening in the church is uh, in an effort to empower church members to make art as part of worship, to participate in a visual experience within worship. Um, The making of banners, the making of the, the building of community through small groups uh, workshops. Um, and I think that it's incredibly important to empower one another as makers. So I do think making is very central to my vocation as both a pastor and an artist. One thing that I do worry about is that there are a lot of artists out there who have been incredibly hurt by the church, yeah. whatever the church means for them, which right. of course we know the church is not also in, in the U.S. not one thing. It's not monolithic. Right. So I think that there has to be, the work we still have to do is around, first of all, for progressive Christians to make sure that uh, we are participating in the conversations to build justice in our government systems and our healthcare systems, that we are participating in helping to deconstruct white supremacy, colonial powers that still exist within our society, that we are making sure uh, to build inclusive communities, make sure that progressive communities outside of church mm-hmm. know that we are doing all of these things. So I think that's important because I think it, it often... <laughs> The loudest voices in Christianity in this country right now are uh, not progressive voices. So another thing is that uh, within the church, as we try to build an inclusive community, in our worship and art communities and committees in the church, it is important to make sure we understand who are the artists among us. Mm. And the artists among us may not be the ones that we think yeah. As I have participated in both communities, the PCUSA and the art community, uh, at least where I am, I continue to be concerned about the inclusion of artists within the church, mm. um, making sure that we're paying attention to who is in our community making art. Mm. So I think it would be exciting for the churches to know where their contemporary art galleries are, for mm. example, in their community and attend gallery openings as a as a group or small groups. Sally Ann McKenzie on AIJCast. You can find her online through her website, sallyannmckenzie.com. That's S-A-L-L-Y-A-N-N-M-C-K-I-N-S-E-Y.com. On our next episode, part two of our conversation with Sally Ann McKenzie. AIJ Casa made possible through the support of listeners like you. We are grateful for our listeners who support our work. You can find out more at our website, AIJCast.com, where you can click on the link that says support. And we do love to interact with you on the social medias. We are there on a number of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music comes courtesy of our house band, Marred Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the somewhat saccharine Al Mudeep. 
Al describes his interaction with international cuisine this way. It's been an experience of different seasons. And I'm your host, Martha Ames Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, and remember that there is no true beauty in the world until it is beautiful for all. Peace and justice.